Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuers Managing Editor. And I'm John Hay, the Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Every week we come to you with uh, all that's most interesting from the world's capital markets. And this week, coming up, we're going to be talking to our Emerging Markets reporter, George Collard. Uh, we're going to be talking turkey with him about the country's election and whether its bond issuers are going to make it back to the uh, back to the capital markets or not as a result. Um, but first, John, uh, not satisfied with playing Jordan Belfort to such a claim in the Wolf of Wall Street, Leonardo DiCaprio is uh, wading back into big finance again. Uh, but this time it's all a bit more wholesome, isn't it? He's, um, he's, he's a big champion of a debt for nature swap to save the Galapagos Islands. Um, so first of all, could you perhaps remind us what a debt for nature swap is and then why this one is so special? Yeah, it is quite complicated. So um, uh, a debt for nature swap is is a sort of umbrella term for a variety of different financial techniques, which are really in their infancy. But um, so what we're talking about with this one is Ecuador issuing a bond, which is going to be about six hundred million dollars. And that bond is going to refinance a loan that Credit Suisse, the investment bank, made to Ecuador. And Ecuador used the money from this loan to buy back some of its old bonds in the market that were trading at at low prices. And what's happened so far is that it's been able to do the buyback um, and it's bought back about $1.6 billion of of old bonds for roughly $600 million. So, and that's because the bonds were trading at, at, at such low prices. So it's immediately reduced its debt stock by about a billion. Um, which is quite significant. Now, um, the the second part of, of what's going to happen is that th- there'll be some guarantees provided for the debt um, by by external agencies, and one of them is the the United States um, International Development Finance Corporation, and the other is the international sorry the Inter American Development Bank. Now, what those do is that they're going to reduce the cost of the bond that Ecuador has to issue. Uh, to finance this buyback and as a result it will cost it less money so there's a further saving there and and these guarantees are provided because Ecuador is willing to invest some of the saved money in protecting nature Uh, and specifically in this case the Galapagos Islands which which belong to Ecuador and are sort of famously biodiverse and, and unique ecosystem. And um, I mean, just just to make clear, uh, what, what we're talking about, Leonardo DiCaprio here is he's posted on Instagram um, about <laughs> about the uh, financing. Yeah. It's um, now it's it's what's interesting um, to me. I, I don't. I realise this isn't the perfect analogy, uh, but if I was to go and buy a new motorbike, say, I probably wouldn't go to a dealer that was about to go out of business and had been scandal ridden for the last few years, um, and I would uh, also probably. Think twice about buying it from um, a sort of sh- a shaky looking manufacturer. Um, now, Ecuador is a country where the um, the president is in the middle of being impeached. And, um, you know, uh, Credit Suisse's troubles are well documented, aren't they? So how have they managed to pull this off? 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is a remarkable story, and and also the the sort of Hollywood angle, uh, you know, with Leonardo DiCaprio is really just because he he supports the environmental cause that's involved, and you know has an interest in finance and you know thinks it's a cool deal. Um, but the Hollywood angle is there because, um, as you say, that the drama of both Credit Suisse and Ecuador itself being in in deep dire straits, just as this very innovative deal is concluded, it is does make it quite remarkable. And it's the biggest of its kind, isn't it? Yeah, there have been deals with Belize and Barbados before, but um, they, you know, this one is sort of several times bigger. And. And Credit Suisse has, uh, has done has done all of the ones that have happened so far. So, um, yeah. what's what's the sort of future for the for the product? Uh, presumably, someone will just hire those staff, and another bank will claim the um, the glory from here on in. Well, they might stay at Credit Suisse, which is obviously going into UBS. We don't know what's going to happen there. There, it is a it is a remarkable track record, having done um, all of these very high profile sort of attention capturing deals. And you know, there'd be there'd be a good case for UBS to try and hold on to these people. I imagine you know some other banks might might be after them. I don't know, but but it but it's a small team of, of very specialised people that that do this. Um, the the big question really for the market is whether this is an activity that's going to grow. And there are people who who are big believers in it and who think, um, you know, th- this could come to be quite a quite a widespread type of, of financing. And and in fact, you know, part of the hope for it is simply that it's very difficult to find ways to make financing nature or, or sort of the repair of nature or protection of nature um, possible. You know, it's it's inherently not very financeable. You know, it doesn't, you know, sort of rainforests and, and healthy coastlines don't, don't produce revenue necessarily in an obvious way. So finding ways for, to sort of apply finance to, to the problem of biodiversity um, and sort of habitat erosion is, is quite difficult. And that's why, you know, there, there's such great interest in, in these debt for nature swaps where, you know, if they're done right and the, the stars align, then, you know, there are, it really is financeable. The other big part of this is, of course, the debt relief that Ecuador gets. Now, um, you said it reduces its uh, sort of liabilities by about a billion dollars. Um, one of the analysts that uh, our Latin America correspondent, uh, Ollie West, spoke to in this story thought well that wasn't really such a such a great thing it's only reduced its debt stock by about six percent in her estimation so i mean is that is that is that good enough does that does this, are these are these still only going to be these sort of like fringe products are they really that useful to the sovereigns that do them well it's true six percent is not perhaps game changing but it's it's a tidy some for any country, right? Um, I mean, Italy would be quite pleased to have a 6% um, reduction in its debt stock. Um, so obviously the numbers with Ecuador are much smaller, but, but, it, but it, you know, it's, it's certainly handy. Um, I think it's also, it's, it's a confidence boost, um, you know, that, that they could get the, the deal done and that it shows there's sort of proper organization and continuing government even even amid this crisis um i think um you know with with belize and barbados the the sums involved were sort of closer to being game changing you know they they, they those are those are smaller countries and you know the, the amounts were, were quite material um i think uh, you know an interesting aspect of it is that you know paradoxically people were saying that 
the the crisis around Ecuador actually made the made the deal in some ways you know more efficient mm. because the the lower the bonds fall in the secondary market the cheaper they get the the bigger the saving that can be made by buying them back now uh, um you know so there's a sort of paradoxical windfall from that but as somebody i spoke to when ollie and i worked on a, a story about this in february did point out that the way to think about this is not to concentrate too much on the saving from buying the bonds cheaply that there are you know the deal has to work in other ways and and it's the sort of ongoing financing cost uh, to the country that's most important um now credit swiss uh did its own uh bond buybacks in the autumn when it came under uh, a lot of pressure um in the market over its new strategy and perceptions of mm. its um I guess solvency. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that you know they should have considered their own debt for nature swap, but does does this technique only work for sovereigns? I mean, it's obvious why it works well for a sovereign issuer or you know a government, but is there uh, a way this technique can be adapted for companies, banks, and other types of issuer that might be able to buy back their debt on the cheap and uh, use some of the proceeds to commit to funding? ESG causes, perhaps? It could. Um, I think it's sort of difficult to, I can't, well, perhaps probably cleverer people can could come up with with five suggestions of how it could be used. Um, I think, I think the, the thing to grasp is the essential um, sort of three-party arrangement, which is that, that you've got this external party which which has to be credit worthy, like in this case a development bank and a and the the U.S. Development Finance Corporation, um, that is willing to offer a guarantee, which means taking risk, in order to achieve a, a sort of wider aim, um, in this case protecting nature, which the 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 government or or the borrowing entity isn't capable or willing to finance on its own. Uh, so it it is a sort of quite unusual set of circumstances that have to work together. Um, I, I don't think the, um, the the bond buyback element is necessarily uh, crucial to it, but the, you know, the, the, this combination of, of, a, of a sort of credit worthy entity willing to take risk to, to make the deal happen, that is essential. Well, perhaps we should start the Global Capital Podcast first competition, John, um, and encourage people to write into podcast at globalcapital.com if you have five reasons why this will work for uh, for different types of borrower. Um, we'd love, love to hear from you on that. Um, well, even with one reason. Yeah, yeah, one reason would be fine. Yeah, um, as long as it's vaguely credible. Um, I'm not sure what the prize will be at this stake, uh, this, at this point, but um, we'll figure something out. Now, another story this week from our securitization reporter, George Smith, um, covers how banks are having to fund themselves in the capital markets again uh, now that central bank funding is rolling off. And we're talking about the residential mortgage-backed securities market, aren't we, John? Yeah. Now, this uh, really is and ought to be the mainstay of securitization. And it was before the financial crisis, which devastated the securitization market in Europe. Um, mortgage, mortgages are the biggest asset class on the balance sheets of, of banks uh, and the whole financial system across Europe. And they're, they're the obvious assets to securitize. They're highly credit worthy. Um, 
And, you know, when the market's working well, banks and other mortgage lenders can get attractive financing uh, by securitizing them and also um, reduce the burden on their balance sheets and their capital. So it's, it's a market that ought to work. But really, since the crisis, it's been patchy. And uh, in particular, the last few years have been pretty um, poor. For, for mortgage securitization issuance. And, you know, the, the major reason is the, um, well, obviously the background of uh, regulatory clobbering that securitization has had since the crisis, but but laid on top of that has been the provision of cheap finance to banks by central banks, um, notably during COVID when there was another whole sort of leg of central bank largesse to um, get, you know, get the whole economy through the pandemic. Yeah, and this is uh, as George Wright. It's a it's a pretty cu- it's a pretty crucial fortnight for the market. Uh, there have been some deals that have uh, come through recently, but there's a whole whole load more coming. Um, but there's there's a there's a slight sort of question mark over the market, isn't there? Because one of those deals didn't really go too well, and that's not really what you want to see when you've got a huge slug of uh, issuance coming up. Yeah, it's an interesting story because, as you say, the the two things happening at once, one is that, you know, a real revival of um, mortgage issuance, especially in the UK, uh, it's it's centred on the UK, um, and, uh, you know, four prime residential mortgage-backed securities have been announced this week, um, including one from Lloyd's, one of the biggest issuers. Um, so so th- there's a real sign that, that issuance is coming back. And that's prime, principally because of the ending of this period of central bank um, doling out cheap money. Um, but at the same time, um, the, the, the few deals that have come to the market have up to now been on an improving trend. But the one that came last week, which was by LendInvest, uh, is, is of buy-to-let mortgages. Um, you know, it got done, but it didn't. It, it didn't continue that improving trend. And there was a sense in the market that sort of, you know, demanded had kind of plateaued or sort of gone slightly, got slightly weaker. And that, that's not terribly encouraging. Just ahead of this big um, sort of slew of deals. No, when other uh, groups of issuers in, I guess, bigger parts of the capital markets. Have, have come back, um, you know, bringing supply. Those deals have often been very well received because the market has been undersupplied for so long. Um, and there have been a lot of investors that haven't been able to get hold of any paper. Uh, but I suppose this really speaks to just how thin the investor base is for this product. Yeah, it is very thin. And that is the major problem of the market that, um, you know, so many chief investment officers and CEOs of investment firms after the crisis just said, you know securitization uh no thanks we, we we're not it's you know it's bad news it's tarnished with with lehman brothers and all the you know subprime problems in the us we're just not going to touch it and you know the investor base has never come back in the strength um that's needed to have a really vibrant market and that means the investors though committed the ones that that are involved are very you know, very knowledgeable about the market. Um, there just aren't enough of them. And that means that the market's sensitive. The spreads are really much too wide for where they ought to be. And, um, you know, that in turn makes issuers, you know, not particularly enthusiastic. I guess the one thing um, in the market's favour, perhaps, um, even considering the, the deal that didn't perform quite so well, is that the last two weeks have been absolutely packed, haven't they, with central bank policy meetings and economic data, inflation data, and all the rest of it. So, you know, if there were, if there were, if there was a fortnight where 
deals weren't going to go so well, those those might very well be it. Certainly in other markets, we've seen huge drops in the volume of paper being issued, full stop. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. It's, it, because it's a market without that many deals, um, each one gets analysed very carefully. And the sort of, the there's a, all the participants in the market are sort of very sensitive about the kind of sentiment around it. So, um, you know, I've, yeah, people said it might just have been um, the it, it was an off day. It might have been that the lead manager, JP Morgan, didn't sort of handle the communication around the deal perfectly. Um, you, you know, they, they, there are all kinds of sort of ways to explain it. Somebody else pointed out that it, it might simply have been that um, the market's found its level, right? It's found it's it's been tightening. It's t- buy-to-let uh, mortgage paper has tightened from 150 over Sonia, 150 basis points at the beginning of the year to 110 over. But it's just it, people had hoped it would sort of break through and keep going lower, and it and it just sort of stopped at that point. But I think it's clear that the prime deals that come uh, will be those will be more in demand. They're, they're sort of viewed as higher quality, and um, investors are expected to want them. Yeah, I mean, we shall see, of course, because it was interesting what you just said about few deals and how how carefully analysed they are. I mean, these are not sort of straightforward vanilla vanilla bonds, and um, no. a thin investor base suddenly deluged with uh, with more deals than they're used to handling. They're they're going to struggle to go through them all insufficient uh depth in the in the time allowed and i guess that's another risk um with this upcoming wave of issuance yeah that is and and it, it will need to be carefully uh timed and spaced out um you know it, it, the, this was something we saw in the corporate bond market this week which is much, much bigger uh, busier market but um and you know it's in pretty good shape but on Tuesday, <coughs> just after the bank holidays in, in France and the UK on Monday, um, there was an enormous pack of deals came into the market uh, at once. And um, of course, they, you know, you can't really, there's no sort of central authority that gives you a ticket for when, you know, when, mm. when you can book a slot in the market. They, you know, the, issuers consult their banks and they have to make make the best guess and you know there was something like nine deals on one day which it was clearly too many and um they suffered as a result not not dramatically you know they didn't uh, none of the deals failed but um you know it was clear that they didn't get as much demand as as they might have at a quieter time so this i think in the securitization market it's easier because the deals take longer uh you know they're, they're often marketed for a week or so and that um makes it easier to schedule them yeah yeah, well, we shall see. I mean, another and another market, of course, that has got a, a, a big event coming up is uh, Turkey this weekend with its uh, presidential and parliamentary elections. And we spoke to George Collard about that and what the consequences might mean for Turkish borrowers in the bond market. Hello, George. Welcome back to the Global Capital Podcast. Good morning. It's great to be back. Uh, now, a big part of the emerging market bond universe, um, but a country in some economic straits is Turkey. Uh, it's got a presidential election this weekend. Um, but what's the economic backdrop to this? Because we'll get on later to why it's so important for the bond market. But if you could just set the scene for us, what's going on? So President Erdogan has been in power since 2003, effectively, and he presided over very rapid growth initially. But in the past 10 years or so, and then particularly in the past three years, he's carried out a very unorthodox 
um, economic policy, which has put off foreign investors. Um, it's caused runaway inflation, which at the moment is over 40%, but last year it was over 80% for much of last year. And of course, inflation is a problem all over the world, but in Turkey, it has been compounded by the fact that, for example, he insists on cutting interest rates to, to fight inflation, which is the opposite of what nearly every central bank in the world has been doing for the past year or so. Um, it's also running a very big current account deficit. Foreign currency reserves are falling and the lira has slumped um, and the lira is being supported by control. So there's a lot f a, a, a lot more it can fall and observers that I've just to say it needs to fall. Um, so it's not a pretty picture. And of course, he's um, he's sort of been accused of meddling in, uh, well, not meddling as such, but you know, the 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 independence of the central bank has been brought into question, hasn't it, a couple of times? Yes, um, this is very much linked to the inflation problem in that he has effectively been telling the central bank not to raise interest rates, um, and not only is that bad economically, but interfering in institutions like the central bank, um, which is in theory meant to be independent, and this applies everywhere, not just in Turkey, is something that foreign investors just don't like as, as a principle. Well, speaking of those foreign investors, has that prevented Turkish bond issuers from coming to the market? It hasn't pre prevented the sovereign in the past year or two. Um, they've done, they did $11 billion last year, which was their funding target, and they've done seven and a half billion already this year, which is three quarters of the way to their 10 billion target. So They've been able to to issue bonds um, on the sovereign side. They're, they're well known as a very savvy and experienced debt management office. So they do tend to time their issuances very well. Um, however, they have paid a high price. All of their three bonds this year carry coupons above 9%, which is compared to historic coupons, it is very, very high. Mm. Um, however, the other two big groups of issuers, which are banks and companies, they've been more or less absent from the from the primary bond market since 2021. Uh, last year, there were only two issuers, um, Coca-Cola Ice Check, which is a bottling company for Coca-Cola in Turkey, and Istanbul Metropolitan Municipality uh, were the only two. And this year, there's only been two banks and they were both state-owned. So it, it's been next to nothing. And again, like the sovereign, they've paid a very high price to do so. So George, what's actually at stake in the election and what, what's, gonna, what's likely to happen? Well, Answering the second part, it's 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 not clear. the The polls are very tight. I think most polls that in in the past week have given the opposition uh, candidate a, a slim lead. He's called Kemal Kilic Daroglu. Um, I hope that sounds sounds appropriate. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's too tight saying. And as has been shown all over the world in the past few years, polls are, can get it wrong. Um, however, there there was a rally in in Turkish bonds this week, which suggests that investors are more hopeful that he can win um so the the investors want a change of government yes i that is the unanimous uh, opinion of all investors i've chatted to probably over the past year and analysts as well that it, unsustainable is the word that has been used to describe the current government's policies sort of repeatedly okay and what's the schedule for the election and what are the, you know there's obviously a poll this weekend um what happens after that so the, there's a presidential and parliamentary poll this this Sunday. So they're not only voting for the presidency, they're also voting for, I think it's around 600 seats in parliament and every single one of them is up for election. Uh, results for the presidential election will be known very soon, um, uh, according to some of the investors. I saw. It could be as, as soon as Sunday evening where we have an indication of what's happened um, because of the number of seats being contested in parliament. That'll take a bit longer. To win outright in the first round, one of the candidates needs to get 50% of the vote. And at the moment, 
the suggestion in polls is that that won't happen and so there will be a runoff in two weeks time so on may the 28th um and then that would just be between the two highest polling candidates from the first round and that would decide the winner and and thereafter are we guaranteed a let's say the opposition win or erdogan loses are we guaranteed a smooth and swift handover of power well that's that's the question really um no nobody is quite sure um if the if the vote is very tight it's pretty much guaranteed that erdogan will contest it or indeed Kilicdoroglu would contest it if he lost by a narrow margin. Uh, it, it's just very difficult to say. I, investors I've spoken to and analysts, there there is a fear that Erdogan may decide that he hasn't lost and and would annul the vote or do what he did a few years ago in in mayoral elections and demand a re a rerun. Um, mm. So it is very unclear. And I think even in the sort of best case scenario, and that the opposition win, um, best case scenario from the view of investors, that is, it, it'll still take you know, weeks, if not months, for the dust to settle. And also, do we know what their economic policies are? I mean, we're assuming, I guess, um, or at least as far as this conversation is concerned, we've we've kind of assumed that um, everything's going to be different and monetary policy will be orthodox and uh, it'll leave the central bank to do its thing and all the rest of it. But is that is that true? Do we know that or not? I think, I think that is the impression, yeah. It, orthodox is probably the word to describe the opposition candidate he's going to reverse or has said he's going to reverse all sorts of of things that erdogan has stood by for the past few years particularly the main one being interest rates and inflation um but there's all sorts of different things ranging from economic policy to press freedom to releasing political prisoners or that sort of thing it it would be very much a pivot from a foreign policy as well back to the west um if the opposition win so george if the opposition do win um, what can we expect in the bond market? I think in the immediate um, aftermath of the election, the, sort of the huge rally that some might expect probably won't happen. And one investor I spoke to has said that the rally has already happened. Turkish sovereign bond yields, for example, have dropped quite a lot from last summer towards the end of last year. That's not saying a huge amount because they were at very high levels, but they ha- there has been a rally already. And it's not simply a case that if the opposition win, everything is fixed. It- it's going to take a long time, years, and a-, and a huge amount of pain to to sort out the economy. So investors will, of course, be very happy if, if the opposition win and money will return to Turkey um, from overseas, but it- it's not going to be a sudden sort of Goldilocks scenario where everything's great again. And unfortunately, um, orthodox economic policy often isn't very po- isn't very popular, is it? And no. some of the things that, that might have to happen could be quite nasty. Indeed. Uh, speaking to anal- analysts um, this week, uh, Turkey's current interest rate is 8.5%. Um, and they've said it will have to go as high as 30%, and if not higher, um, to rein in inflation. And uh, an investor made a very good point that the, re- the rise in interest rates in the US from near zero to five percent in the last year has caused quite a lot of damage in the form of some regional banks collapsing so you can imagine what can happen if it rises from eight and a half percent to 30 and beyond there'll be a lot of things that will break um but it's necessary is is the impression i i've i've got one thing that should be all right is the banks though isn't it because the turkish banks who have uh, quite old they've been through many a crisis over the past 50 years or so and they're they withstood it all and they're quite well capitalized aren't they yes the the impression we've always got from from investors and analysts is that turkish banks are very well run they're they're strong they've got plenty of capital um 
things will get get hard for them you know an interest rate change like that would be very difficult for them to adjust to they've had to adjust to an unorthodox operating environment in turkey for for the last few years and switching back to an orthodox one although in the long term that might be favorable it will be difficult for them but yeah as you say they are they're in good shape i think in terms of their funding though as well they've they've traditionally had uh been able to rely upon the loan market where they've had a lot of relationship lenders that will lend to them no matter what and their bond issuance, at least in the time I've been at Global Capital, has been a fairly, fairly recent thing um, because they've had such good loan market access, and I guess that's how they've they've managed to get through this particular period as well. Yep, the the loans they they do twice yearly refinancing, and they they've rolled on. I mean, syndicate sizes, so the number of banks that is that that have lent to them each time, and the amounts they've raised, and the prices, of course, you know that that's got uh, more difficult and and harder for them but they have still rolled on banks have stuck by them um on the bond front as as mentioned earlier they have been more or less absent um particularly the privately owned banks uh, for nearly 18 months now um but they are frequent bond issuers at least they have been in the last few years and although they are well capitalized and, and they do have money to to meet their debt obligations in foreign currency eventually they will have to come to the bond market f- to meet their capital requirements and if the opposition win that will in theory, be a lot easier and uh, a bit cheaper as well. One interesting thing I thought in your article was about the foreign currency reserves, because um, the picture there is not quite as uh, straightforward as it looks, is it? No, um, it's partly looking rosy because they've been receiving foreign currency uh, deposits from partners in the Gulf Cooperation Council region in, in the Middle East, so Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, it was a, a, just over 60 billion uh, with the foreign currency the latest foreign currency reserve figures from the central bank. However, on a net basis, uh, they're deeply in the negative, um, according to one investor. Um, so, you know, while they do have support from from foreign partners, um, yeah, the the, net, the the foreign currency reserve picture is not as as rosy as it might seem. And is there much debt to be refinanced in the markets from from any um, of the groups of borrowers in Turkey? On the sovereign side this year, well, for the rest of this year, it, it's very light. They have one maturity um, in December. Uh, next year, however, they have five different maturities, which are it's quite a large amount. So um, as, as, as we've discussed, they haven't had a problem coming to the bond market. Um, but the problem is if they keep having to, to refinance at such high levels, that will be difficult. So, But next year, if the opposition has won, it will be a lot clearer by 2024 what they're trying to do, how easily they'll be able to do it. So. It may, it may be cheaper for them, for them next year. Um, on the uh, bank or corporate side, again, this year is is, is a bit lighter. There aren't really any um, major, there's no wall of maturities coming this year. So on the corporate side, for example, they can afford to to sort of sit and wait. And, and one syndicate bank I spoke to who does a lot of work in Turkey, he said the impression he gets from his conversations with corporate issuers is that they're in no rush um, to do anything on, on, on the bond market at the moment. Um, again, Next year is a bit bigger. There are bank maturities um, that need to be met and there are some some corporate ones as well. But for now, they've got a bit of breathing room. Um, one question. I mean, I suppose it's a little bit related to uh, the question John just asked about the reserves, perhaps. But how has the sovereign managed to keep financing itself and the capital markets for all of this? It's a good question because, you know, it carries single B ratings and pretty much every other single B rated sovereign in 
in the Semia region over the past 18 months has not had any market access whatsoever, but Turkey's managed to do it. Um, it's partly because they are such a well-known um, issuer. They've they've been doing it for a long time. They're very savvy, as mentioned. They, they seem to time their issuances when the market is in a really good spot. Um, but they're also a very big economy and, and a very diversified economy. One investor said that Turkey's economy has grown and has rumbled on in spite of what the government's doing simply because it, it's very diversified. It's got a lot of strong companies, strong banks. So while the all the sort of economic indicators that you look at do look quite bad, um, from an investor standpoint, it at least in the near term, that there's no real risk of default. Um, and while they, while they demand a high price to get, to get any new bonds done, they, they can do it. Well, to follow the consequences of Turkey's election on the capital markets or for detailed coverage of uh, crunch time for European securitization, don't forget to go to globalcapital.com. Thank you to John and to George for joining me to record this episode. And thank you to Gerald Hayes, our producer, who puts it together. Thank you most of all for listening. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. Goodbye. <laughs>